James chapter 1. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, God, thank you so much that we can be together here today. Lord, I want to pray right now for everybody who we encountered yesterday at the street fair. Too many names for me to name. We tried to write some of them down, but Lord, my prayer is that uh, people would read the literature that they were given. I pray that people would think about the things that were said to them. And I pray that you, Lord, no one can come to you unless you draw them. You call us to give out the word, and we gave out the word. And our prayer, Lord God, is that you would use the word that was given out to draw people to yourself. Help us not to stop at that, but to continue to be devoted in our lives to this task which is given to us by you to take the gospel to other people. Lord, as we undertake now to read this epistle of James, I pray, Lord God, that in today's message we would be edified and instructed, that we would pay attention, and and Lord God, that we would be an encouragement to each other when we speak and we talk about these things, and, and we would just look to you for wisdom as this passage implores us to do, believing and trusting in you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I'll put this little testimony in here, too, uh, before I start reading, because I, I, Bob, Bob was standing out in front of the tent with me yesterday for a little bit, and, and, and we, we, for many years, have watched these, uh, you know, Way of the Master videos with Ray Comfort, you know, and uh, so I guess we just decided to ourselves, like, take some money out and and because that's one of the things that he does is he like he like offers people money and says here can, well, can you come and take a little test so he did that I, I grabbed a couple guys that were walking by and I said here I, I want to give you guys each a, a dollar if you'll come to the tent and take a little test so I said, I'll give you the dollar in advance so they said yes you all right there leave all right and then you have you have um, you have uh, I say these. Uh, uh, I say to these guys, come on over. So they come over, and then we start asking them, you know, do you think you're a good person? And we start taking them through all these questions and everything. And, and it was pretty neat because, I mean, I think the one, at least the one guy, at the point when we questioned him about, like, sin and your accountability and the fact that God's going to judge you, and we ask him, are you concerned about that? You know, one guy was definitely, like, very sincerely concerned. And then, and then into the context of that, we spoke into... Uh, the, the good news of Christ. And so when you get a chance to do that, you get a chance to contextualize the good news for someone. It's not just this fact that Jesus died for your sins and if you pray a prayer, you'll go to heaven. No. It's because of your sin, you stand judged and eternally condemned. But God has done this great thing which will lift that condemnation if you will but humble yourself and turn to Him. So... Anyway, we had a chance to share that, uh, like that clearly with people. And just the Lord, the Lord was in it. And I just thought it was really good. Okay, enough. Here we go. Uh, James chapter 1. Let me read the first 11 verses. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat Then it withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. All right? So uh, we talked about who James was in the message that we had last week. So we'll refrain from identifying him anymore. But let's say a couple of things just about this greeting again in verse 1. It's a very interesting observation to make as we talked last week about the fact that James was the the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He was the son, the natural son of Mary and Joseph, right? And he's identified as such, which like I said, I'm not going to go into. But then it would have been interesting for him to, at the head of his letter, identify himself as thus. And he did not. He said, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which even though he was part of Jesus' earthly family, there's no hint in that of an assertion of any sort of special privilege or special position on his part. Just like anyone else, James identifies himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus, who he grew up with and was his half-brother. So I find that to be just a remarkable expression of understanding of the position of a Christian because it's the same position of all of us. We are slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James very much viewed himself as that way. And I think when we begin to view ourselves as that way, that we probably do well in just setting our own mindset right to accomplish the things in our lives that the Lord has called us to do. So I think there's a very good example of humility and prioritization there uh, expressed by James. He's a slave of God. Jesus is his Lord, just like me, just like you if you're in Christ, just like every Christian. That's what we are. And that's how we ought to live our lives as slaves of God and as servants of our Lord Jesus. Then he addresses the letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And, of course, when he speaks of 12 tribes, you immediately in your mind, if you have any knowledge of the Bible at all, you go to the place of understanding that he's speaking to Israel. A reference to the 12 tribes is a reference to Israel, right? Because there are certainly more than 12 tribes of all people of all the earth, right? But he's addressing their Israelite or Jewish Christians, And I just want to say this because 
sometimes it might be a little too stringently contextualized to say that James is specifically attempting to or intend the things that he writes in the letter for Jewish believers. And that's not true. I don't think so as you unpack all of the words of this epistle. You realize that the truths and the instructions that are given are axiomatic in as much as it relates to Christians, including Gentile Christians. So why does James address his letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad? And I think the answer to that is because that's what James' experience of the, the, the church and faith in Christ was from the very beginning. We took the time to show that last week, that James was emerged as the leader of the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church was comprised of what? People from the 12 tribes who were scattered abroad. That's how the Jerusalem church started. Jews who were scattered all over the world came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. We even saw through the gift of speaking in tongues that was given on that day to the Christians that all of these Jewish believers who had gathered for Pentecost heard the wonderful things of God being spoken in their own languages, right? Well, the church lasted like that for quite some time. Travel, it's hard for us sometimes to contextualize that with a modern mindset because we think in terms of travel as being going somewhere and coming back. We will almost always, if we're taking a trip somewhere, we'll plan the return, right? Has, any, has anyone here ever planned a vacation and not planned to come back? That's what we would all like to do, right? Yeah. I'm going on vacation. Well, when are you coming back? I don't know. Well, that's what we all, that's what, that, that's the ultimate vacation, right? That's what we all want to do. But no, usually if you go on hotels.com or expedia.com or you want to book a flight or you want to book a hotel, you're planning a certain number of days and you book a round trip, right? Well, the round trip was not necessarily a thing in the ancient world that was harshly adhered to. If somebody traveled from Mesopotamia, if somebody traveled from Rome, if somebody traveled from Ethiopia and went to Jerusalem, they didn't just go and stay for a couple of days and go back because it would take them days and days and days or even a week or two even just to get there, right? And so people would set aside lots and lots of time. And sometimes people would stay in a place for months, right? That was common in the ancient world. And that type of life is what allowed the Jerusalem church to flourish. And James, not one of the original apostles, but James, the half-brother of the Lord, as we saw in Acts 15 last week, emerges as what you might say, you might in modern terms call the senior pastor of that church. Even when it came to certain matters, like we saw in Acts 15, seeming to be, to put it in a modern way, uh, where the buck stopped, with, as opposed to even Peter or Paul or, or any of the other ones, the apostles, right? And so that was a, just a really interesting thing. The church thrived and was made up of these Jews. Now, what happened? These Jews from everywhere in the world, eventually you saw when you got into chapter 7, um, and spoiler alert for the youth group uh, tonight, I think Bob is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 7, but, so I won't spoil any of that now. But when that happened, what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen uh, makes his defense and ends up giving his life, that kicks off a period of great persecution. And that Jerusalem church, which had flourished for so long, was broken up. 
And we're told that they scattered and they went everywhere. And God used that persecution to cause them, wherever they went, to preach the gospel. So the, the first, like, spreading out and fanning out to share the word of God was accomplished by these people that James is addressing here in his letter. Jews who were scattered abroad. And they went and they preached the word wherever they went. They preached in places like Antioch, right? And the church was born. And in the course of time, that church became very much infused with the life of Gentiles who had also believed. And of course, that's the place where they were first called Christians. But that was started with the influence of some of these people that he's addressing here. So when James addresses, to bring it back to this, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, he's writing a letter to address, really, you might say, the people who were part of his congregation who got chased out of Jerusalem when uh, the Sanhedrin started to like arrest them and throw them in prison and just threaten their lives and separate families and everything else. They were persecuted and chased away. So James writes this letter. Now, over the course of time, what happens? Christianity, the church, becomes very much filled with Gentiles as well under the influence and ministry of the Holy Spirit using the Apostle Paul, especially. And so you look at the epistle of James and you see that he addresses the 12 tribes scattered abroad. But whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as a Christian, you look at the epistle of James and you realize he's talking to me. James is speaking to the Christians who were of his experience in his days of ministry. But this is certainly a letter that is very much applicable to us, like Hebrews, right? And, uh, and so you take that very interesting, I think, history of the church, which is revealed just in that salutation in the beginning of the letter, and you let yourself be edified by it and built up in your understanding by it, but don't let yourself be distracted by it. If somebody says he's addressing the Jews and so there are some things in here that are uniquely for Jewish believers, that's not really true. Not at all. He's addressing Christians. James is writing to you and he's writing to me. God is speaking to you and God is speaking to me through this letter. Right? And then he greets them with the simple word greetings. Now, now we get into the first theme. James does not uh, prolong his introduction. He gets right into issues. And the first issue is the one we've been talking about already a little bit here this morning. And that is this issue of trouble. Trouble. What is trouble? You know what trouble is? Trouble is one of the great equalizers of humanity. Trouble comes to us all. There are other things that are equalizers, right? We all die. We all experience perhaps sickness from time to time. We all have to pay our taxes, etc. and so forth. But one of the things that is a great leveler of humanity is trouble. And as Christians, we're the same. I think that's why, not to jump ahead to the end of the passage, but that's why the, that this passage ends, verses 9, 10, and 11. Why is he talking about the poor and the rich in the context of troubles? Because the poor and the rich experience troubles equally. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Well, in other words, let, let the lowly brother in the midst of trial, which is the context of the passage, and then it goes on from there to talk about temptation after that, which is related to it but different. That'll be next week's issue. But uh, 
the reason he talks about that is the poor person receives trials in their life, right? And the rich person also receives trials in their life. The poor person might think to himself, if I just had more money, there would be less trouble. And the rich person looks at him and says, uh-uh, not true, right? Sometimes having more just brings more troubles along with it, right? And many rich people have observed that. Many poor people have observed that, right? What James says here is he's pointing out that it comes to us all. The lowly brother glories in his exaltation because to exalt means to be lifted up. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the poor person, no matter how much money he has, has been lifted out of the estate where he was, like we sang about before. Christ regarded the lowly estate, right? And he's been, through faith in Christ, he's been lifted out, and now he goes through trials for the growth and perfecting of his faith. The rich man who's got everything faces what? Trials for what? The testing and the completion and the perfecting of his faith. So trials and trouble, just as it is the great equalizer in life among all the sons of men, also is among the Christians. We grow through how we endure hardship. You show me someone who's never gone through anything hard in their life. And I'll show you someone who, when something hard comes up, they're not going to be able to deal with it. And nobody knows that better than our Lord who made us and designed us and loves us and walks with us. And so trials come in various forms, which is why it says here in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Right? A trial could be a satanic attack trouble. A trial could be just the normal difficulties of life overwhelming you. Maybe kind of facing some of the circumstances for your own, you know, reaping what you've sown, your own irresponsibility or procrastination or laziness or whatever. Sometimes a trial might be, as I pointed out before, as Hebrews 12 says, God chastening us. But those are not things to be fearful of when it comes to chastening, we're actually told that's a sign that God is our Father. You know, if you're without chastening, then you're not sons, right? So this idea of troubles coming into our lives, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter frequently. You read about it in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul says, it is given unto you in Christ Jesus not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. He told Timothy, all who live godly, just live godly. Forget about preaching and witnessing. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution in 2 Timothy 3. Right? The one about, the one about uh, enduring persecution, that's in Philippians chapter 2. Right? So, so you, you have all of these statements in the New Testament. Of course, you have the words of Jesus saying what? In the world you will have trouble. Right? But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So as a Christian, you're constantly told in the New Testament that trouble is going to be part of your life. That's why witnessing to people and sharing a gospel with them that invites them to come to Jesus because all of their problems will go away is false and wrong. Because if you preach a gospel like that to someone that presents Jesus not as their Redeemer and their Savior and the one who will take their sins away, but as one who will give you this and give you that in your life, what happens if that person accepts that gospel message? Well, 
probably on day one or two or three, troubles arise in their life. And then, not only do they realize that the message that they preached to, that had preached to them was wrong, but perhaps they even grow a bit resentful about the name of Jesus, and we end up causing more harm than we do causing good. Right? You understand that? But trouble is part of the Christian life. We should never tell someone when we're witnessing to them that God will take all of your troubles away. Here's what you can tell them. God will walk with you through them. And as this passage says, God has a purpose in them which has to do with your personal spiritual growth and you can look to Him for wisdom to find what you need to guide you through it. That's what this passage says. Right? In fact, the very first admonishment given in this verse is one that perhaps we wouldn't expect. Count it all joy. Now, we think in terms of joy as being something that wells up in us organically. Something makes me happy and I'm joyful, right? But the command is to count it all joy, which means there is a deliberate response called for on your part. This is very similar to what Paul said in Philippians, which we went over recently. When twice in that letter, he said, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Right? He's telling them to be deliberate about this. This is what James is saying. Count it all joy. When trouble comes in your life, what is the knee-jerk reaction? What is the instinctive thing for a person to do? It's not to count it all joy. It's to get depressed. It's to feel despondent. It's to get angry. It's to lash out. It's to doubt. It's to think, I must be a loser. There must be all sorts of things wrong with me, etc. I have all the same thoughts that I battle and struggle with, like all of you probably do at various times in your life as well. But James tells us that's not the way that I ought to think. And that's not the way that you ought to think. What you ought to do is count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that's, like I said, that's an umbrella term there. Various. Various. There's all sorts of different kinds of trials that can arrive in life. Various trials. Count it all joy. Why? The next word is knowing. See the word knowing? Knowing. In other words, you're about to get some facts here. Right? James is going to give you a little science here. Ready? Knowing what? Here it is. The testing of your faith produces patience. Right? So, before you even talk about the word patience, the testing of your faith produces, produces, produces. That is, the trials, what they do is they test your faith. And that testing of your faith produces something which in the New King James Version is called patience. And the idea of patience is strength. Inner strength to face more difficulty. Endurance going through. It's kind of like an athlete training themselves to being able to endure more and more and more and more. This is what trials do. Right? And so we're told to count it all joy when you fall into various trials because God is doing something productive in your life. And that, listen... This is why your mind needs to be clear as a Christian 
This is, hey, hey, this is one of the most important facets of Christianity. Your mind needs to be clear. We can't allow ourselves to be like in our minds, here and there and everywhere, and all filled up with all sorts of things that don't matter. And we get ourselves all uptight about all sorts of things that maybe really in the grand scheme of eternity is not all that important. And you have to guard against that. Because you need to be able, when difficulty comes, to what? Consciously remember that God has told you that I am to count it all joy. Because God is working something in me. Something that's going to be even better. You know, the passage in Hebrews 12 that I made a passing reference to before I actually printed a verse inside your bulletins from that passage. The context there is not all various trials. It's the very specific issue of God's chastening. But still, there's a concept there that that is, is axiomatic. And that is that no difficulty... I'm paraphrasing, but but no difficulty is pleasant while you're going through it, right? But when you do go through it, it yields fruit. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And, And you talk about growing into maturity. All difficulty is like that. And of course, the key is to keep your mind clear, to pray always, to stay close to the Lord, to spiritually relate to one another. This is so important that people who are Christians relate spiritually to one another. We are not just called to be friends. We are not just called to socialize. We are not just called to hang out. We are not just called to idle banter, even though there is some place to relax and enjoy all of that. But we are called to be spiritual encouragers of one another. We ought to be able to speak the things of God to one another. We ought to be able, in a sense, to be prophetic towards one another and encourage each other with other things that we've gone through, testimonies, words from the Bible, prayers. We ought to be able to encourage one another so that when the trials come, your mind is clear, you've been in prayer, your mind is in the Word of God, you're spiritually encouraging one another. So when those various trials emerge as a part of your life, you are able to count it all joy because God is producing something in you. Don't worry. Your time as a Christian is coming when there will be no more trouble. That time is not while you're alive in this life. Have you discovered that yet? It's true. When you, when we get to what's next in the kingdom of God, and we are with Christ where He is forever and ever, that will be a time that is free of trial. He will wipe away every tear, the Bible says in Revelation. But now is a time to expect that trials will come because God is producing something in you and in us. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing, 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 knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Can you just decide now that it's true? Can you affirm it? in your heart? Can you just decide now that the Bible is true and that the testing of your faith produces patience? 
Now you'll notice verse 4 starts with the word but, which is a contrast, right? But what? But let patience have its perfect work. But let. Why does it say but let? But let. Because it's not the reaction instinctively when trials come to let the trials work their way through in your life. The instinctive reaction of a person. Now he's kind of shifting gears a little bit, but it's still on the same subject. What the, what the person does, first of all, when trials come, is we don't count it all joy, we count it all misery. And then what do we do? We begin to complain. And we, we, we begin to lash out. Right? So that's like the internal working of the person who doesn't understand the place of various trials in the Christian life starting to emerge out of them. But then what it emerge, when we emerge out, what emerges out of us, what form does that often take? Outbursts of anger? Attempting to manipulate or lie or cheat your way out of a difficult situation? Taking advantage of other people? Putting other people down? Which is one of the most common ways that people affirm themselves. Have you ever noticed that? One of the most common ways that people affirm themselves is to put other people down because we think in the natural, unregenerated mind that if you can put other people down, you shine by comparison. We do that without even thinking about it. These are the ways that come out of the person who doesn't count trouble as a joy. That's why James says, but let patience have its perfect work. In other words, let the trial run its course. Don't worry. God is not just throwing you to the wind. That comes next. All right? That's, he's going to address that. That comes next. Don't, don't count it as defeat. Don't count it as there must be something wrong with you. Don't count it as God must not love me. God must not be with me. Don't count it as all that when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy. Don't lash out and try to manipulate or cheat your way out of it. But what? Let patience, which is what comes from enduring trials, let patience have its perfect work. In other words, let it go on to completion. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but do it all. Wouldn't that be the prayer of a Christian? Lord, I mean, Jesus himself prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Absolutely nothing wrong with praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, take this away from me. But accompanying that ought to be, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Count it joy and let patience do the work. Now look, here's where you all come in. I cannot say this seriously and soberly enough. It is a sacred duty of every Christian to uphold other Christians who are in trials. May it never be that a Christian who is going through some 
various trial has heaped on top of that the arbitrary consternation of other Christians. There is a place for corrective measures. There is a place for rebuke. There is a place to bring someone's attention to their faults, perhaps. There is even a place in Matthew chapter 18 for putting someone out of a church. If, if, if the issue happens to be something that is a result of their own sin that they won't repent of. But even in that most extreme case, the purpose of it is to try to lead the person to repentance, which is what God cares about. What we have, brethren, is a sacred duty to one another to spiritually lift each other up, to pray for each other, to help each other, As I said before, we are not called in the church simply to be friends. May I say to you why it's important that you understand that? That seems like such a basic thing. But it's important to understand that because if if you think the purpose of the church is just to be friends, then the church is in a lot of trouble. You know why? Because nobody's friends with everybody. Not even in a church. You probably have people that are your friends. You probably have people you don't know. You maybe even have people that you don't like. And there's probably some issues of the heart that need to be dealt with there on the part of one or both. But we're not simply called to be friends. We're called brothers and sisters. And that's something much deeper. That's something that demands giving of us. Right? The life, the spiritual life of a church, good or bad, has the capacity to influence how someone feels about God. It has the capacity to influence somebody's faith. And faith, by the way, is the central issue of the book of James. I'll show you that in a minute. Someone asks you what the book of James is about. I don't know what you would say. I can tell you right now, the issue of the book of James is faith. Just like Romans, the issue is faith. James, the issue is faith. And you have the capacity to affect other people's faith. When people are in trial, it's their faith that's being tested. It's their faith that will be strengthened. It is their faith that can be harmed if it's not done right. So be careful about that, brothers and sisters. You be careful about what you do, what you entertain, what you provide, what you say, how you act. You be careful because you have an effect on the faith of others. And it is our Lord Jesus who said things like, you're better off having a millstone cast around your neck and being thrown into the sea than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. I don't mean that in any heavier, harsh way. I'm simply reporting what's there. This is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. Every, listen to me, listen to me, every humble Christian, I'm not talking about a Christian who's walking in pride or disobedience, where discipline, every humble Christian ought to be able to find abundant spiritual support in his church. 
without any fear of anything else. This has to be the haven. Or it's not functioning right. More on that another day. It comes up more. A lot more in this book. The goal is what? The end of verse 4. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's, isn't it interesting that the implication is what? If a person doesn't endure hardships properly, they're lacking. God adds what is lacking in our character, better stated, God adds what is lacking in our faith. Not that, not that like if you've received Jesus as your Savior, there's any risk of you not really being saved. You are. But then our faith ought to grow, right? And what is lacking in that spiritual growth? Is it not? In, like when we think about what's lacking in spiritual growth, we think, well, we need to read the Bible more and we need to pray more. And, you know, and, and all of that is true and all that is correct. But if you think that's the only way that God adds to the growth of a Christian, you're cutting a lot of stuff out. There's the whole act of serving the Lord and preaching the gospel. That's part of spiritual growth. Every Christian ought to be engaging and confessing openly that Jesus is their Lord and confessing the way of eternal life. And you grow spiritually doing that. And another way is through trials and through difficulty. The reason you need to, the reason you need to let patience have its perfect worth work is because you want to become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And it is on the level with studying the Word of God because it's the same phrase that Paul uses when he writes to Timothy and says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be what? Complete. Thoroughly equipped for every work. So just as Paul says the teaching and preaching of all Scripture will bring a person to maturity and completion, James turns around and says, enduring hardships and enduring various trials will cause a person to grow up to completion and perfection. Maturity is the idea. That's why he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy because God's helping you to grow up. That's what various trials do. Lacking nothing. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, right? See how he jumps right from lacking nothing to if you lack wisdom, such and such, right? Here's the great part of this, because if James's description stopped after verse 4, we might be inclined to say, James... What are you talking about? Count it all joy when I fall into trouble? I mean, I've got to have some help. Well, now James launches into help. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? We are told of the Holy Spirit that He lives in us and He is our comforter. Paraclete is one of the words that is translated. It means basically the comforting presence the paraclete is the, the comforter who comes alongside the comforting presence of God. 
And we're told all this. And you see what he says here in verse 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So the idea is not, if any of you is in trouble, come and ask God to take it away. Or in the most extreme heretical cases, if any of you is any trouble, just speak positively over it. And God is bound then to bring what you speak to pass. It's not the biblical method for this at all. No. What it says is, not if you have trouble, pray that it's taken away. If you're in trouble and you lack wisdom, ask of God. Because isn't that really what we need? We think, like it says in verses 9 through 11, the poor person thinks he needs more money. Right? The rich person maybe thinks he needs to have a little less money and a little less responsibility, a little less authority. Maybe everything will be okay. But trouble's the great leveler, right? See, when we're in trouble, maybe the inclination, like, I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. No, here's what you really need. You need wisdom. You need to know how to function through it. Maybe wisdom to solve a problem. Maybe wisdom just to stay focused on the Lord. Maybe wisdom that because there's something you need to say to somebody. Maybe wisdom because there's something that needs to be addressed. Maybe wisdom because you've got a blinder on to something in your life that needs to be dealt with. Wisdom, 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 wisdom. That's, that's the thing that the Christian needs when he's in trouble. God, Lord, yes, certainly, Lord, I'd love it if you'd take this away from me. But Lord, if it's your will for me to endure this, then I'd like to endure it. But Lord, show me how. That's a prayer that God says, if you ask in faith, what does he do? He will give it liberally and without reproach. The idea of liberality there is abundant generosity. Abundant generosity. You want to you see one of my favorite pictures of God's wisdom in all of the Bible? Shake your head, yes. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 19. Proverbs itself is thought of as a book of wisdom. So within this book of wisdom, there's a saying about wisdom. No big surprise there. You're familiar with this, but I just want to read it. Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord, by wisdom, what? Founded the earth. (laughs) Some time ago, some people started this church. Maybe you're someone who started a business. You've started a family. You've undertaken a project. God, by His wisdom, founded the planet. (laughs) You know what that means? That means that when God said, let there be light, and said this, and said that, and said this, and said that, we just think of it as like this cosmic miraculous power, which is a fine way to think of it. But what we don't realize is that when God made everything, He made it out of what He knew. God knew stuff. God was wise when He made the earth. The earth functions and persists. And even with humanity trying to kill itself and trying to destroy itself, everything just carries on and goes on. Not just because God's in control, but because from the beginning, God founded it with wisdom. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. 
By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. The whole system of hydration in the planet is something that started out as one thing after Noah's flood became something entirely different. And yet all of it from the beginning was locked up in here in God's mind. And then God, by astonishing power, spoke it into existence. But it's all a design. That's why you look around and you see the order. You see the complexity of it all. That's why, that's why you look just at the human body itself and the miracle that it is, the capacity through an immune system that it has to heal itself, the complexity of the eye, eye-hand coordination. You look at a great athlete. Uh, I, I, I like, my latest thing is I like, to watch, uh, I like to watch Lionel Messi videos. Anyone a soccer fan? I'm sorry, football, right? I'm, I'm learning to call it that. But you, 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 ever, you, ever, you, ever, you know who you know I'm talking about, right? Lionel Messi. Right? So the guy runs, and somehow the ball appears to be tethered to his foot. Like nobody, he's a tiny little guy. Nobody can stop him. Right? Where does that come from? I mean, some people have it more than others. But I'm watching, I'm thinking to myself, God by wisdom designed humans to be able to take talent and hone it so that they can do these remarkable things. I'm learning, as I'm, I'm learning various little home repair projects, and I'm learning to glaze windows. Does anyone know what glazing windows is? Probably not, because you probably all have really modern windows. I have really old ones. So, like, you put a window pane in place, and then you have to glaze around the edges with uh, putty, right? And it looks so easy when you watch it on a YouTube video. There are even videos called speed glazing. And I look at that and say, how is that possible? And then I stick it on my hand and I try to do this and it all comes off and it looks terrible and it's like, you know. But I'm learning. I'm getting better. But there's a skill in that. Why am I saying all this? God, by wisdom, designed people to be able to hold. And he gave them all different talents. And designed them with the capacity through diligence and practice to hone them. So that they can do things that other people can't. That's the wisdom that was at work when God made Adam and then made Eve. There's so much more to the story. That, now listen, what does this all have to do with what James is saying? Let me tell you what, what James is talking about. If you lack wisdom... You go to the God who is the storehouse of that. By knowledge, he formed the heavens. We don't even have the slightest concept of what's out there. And that's another thing that I have all these stories about myself. I know you don't want to listen to stories about myself. But you know, I'm always a guy. I'm a guy to this day that gets excited to just stand there and look at the moon in the sky. And sometimes some of you will know, like if, if one of the planets happens to be anywhere near the moon in the sky, I'll send, like a, I'll send text messages to about a half dozen of you, like, like 3 o'clock in the morning. Go outside! Jupiter's right next to the moon. Check it out. <laughs> some of you have gotten those texts from me, right? Yes. And don't, don't just laugh at me, because some of, some of you have actually done it, right? In, in response to my text. But like, but, like, but like, listen, God through knowledge formed all that. So the earth revolves on an axis, and it goes around the sun, and it never goes out of its orbit, and it's just so close to the sun 
and, but, but not too far away from the sun so that the water remains liquid. A little closer, it's all gas, like Venus. A little farther away, it's all ice, like Mars. So the Earth is like right in this, this groove. And the thing that holds it in this groove is the gravitational pull of the sun. And then you have the moon in perfect rhythm going around the Earth and marking months and seasons for the dwellers of the Earth. You have the moon in the sky that appears the exact same size as the sun because... Because uh, the sun, though 400 times the size of the moon, is 400 times the distance from the earth. And so they look at the exact same size. Somebody thought of that. That was God. By his knowledge. And God says, the one who thought of all of that and then just, blah, spoke it into existence. He says, come to me in your trouble. When you're in your trials, let it have its work. Count it joy. Let it have its work, but remember you're not alone. Come to me. Ask of me. What does James say? He says, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. What's reproach? Reproach is this. You're asking for that again, you dummy. That's reproach. God says, you come to me to ask for wisdom, I'm not going to reproach you. I'm not going to make you feel small. I'm not going to make you feel like a fool because you're asking me for wisdom. Even if you're asking for the third, fourth, fifth, tenth, twentieth, a hundredth, a thousandth time. It is fixed in the record of my will that I will not reproach you when you come to me and ask for wisdom. However, there is a condition on it, isn't there? What is it? Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubt. Now you see what the book of James is about. The book of James is about faith. There are four great statements about faith in the book of James. The first one is this one. When you go through trouble, you count it joy, you go to God for wisdom, but you make sure you go to God for wisdom in faith, believing that he will give it to you. In chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2, it says you need to hold the faith of God without partiality, right? In, also, in, in, in towards the end of chapter 2, it says about faith that without works, it's dead, and then in chapter 5, it says concerning sick people that the prayer of faith will save the sick. And so you have these statements about faith throughout the book of James. And this statement that we have about faith here today is what? Yes, when I am in difficulty and when I am in trial, God is working something. God is producing something in me. I need to be patient and wait and I can pray and ask and the Lord will see me through it. And God says, come to me for wisdom. Me, the one who by my own wisdom founded everything and created everything. By my knowledge, I created everything. You come to me and you ask me and I will give it to you. But when you ask, you believe. Listen. We're saved by faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. You understand? Faith is how we relate to God. As Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. Right? Trials... Trials, in addition to... 
Listen to this. In addition to the, the, the nature of the trial itself as you go through it, giving you strength to endure more trials, what's the real benefit of trials aside from that? Learning to trust. Learning to trust. Learning to trust. Don't think to yourself that God allows you to go through trials so that next time that happens, it's not going to bother you. Right? You're, you're in a situation where people are doing bad stuff to you behind your back or whatever, right? And, and so you go, you go to the Lord. And the purpose is not so that the next time that people do bad stuff to you behind your back, it's not going to bother you. No. That's not the point. What you need to do is to go to God and ask wisdom so that next time you quicker go to God and ask wisdom. And then the next time after that, you go to God and ask for wisdom. And so you go through your life and you grow as someone who begins to truly depend upon God. Those are the strong Christians. When we're weak, we're strong. God has brought us into a relationship where he does not expect that we grow independent of him. God has brought us into a relationship where we need to learn to become utterly and continuously dependent upon him. Trials do that. That's why he says, but let Patience have its perfect work. Because when trials come, what we want to do is claw and fight and scratch and yell and cheat and manipulate and do whatever we have to do to get out of it. He says, no, count it joy and come to me and trust me. And then next time it comes, maybe you'll come a little quicker and a little quicker. And you need to learn to live your life day by day that way, trusting in him. Those are the people that God can use. There will, all, there will always be people around who seem that they're just like independently strong. But I'll tell you something. If they're truly spiritual, if they're truly spiritual people, they are people who have learned to depend upon God. See, the person who... The person who... Asks for wisdom, but doubts. See what James says? They're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Out of control. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You can't get any more clear than that. He is a double-minded man. And what is double-mindedness? I have to ask, what was that? What was that? Oh, it was your phone? Oh, I get it. It was an airplane. He, he, he works for the airline, right? So that, that's how you get text messages? It sounds like a, it sounds like a 747 flying over? You got you to find something a little more subtle than that. There you go. All right. That was, that was, that was pretty cool. All right. So, what was I talking about? Oh, 
double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So, so you have you have this idea that like you're going to God, which means you have a mindset that sees God as a source of wisdom, but you're not believing Him and you're not trusting Him. So you have two minds towards God.